So welcome to the Next Gen Cast and episode 32. My name's Nish, I'm a GP in Cambridge. And this episode is a bit different. So if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we normally interview leaders and hear their stories. But for this episode, I'm speaking to Oliver Berkman. Oliver is an author. He was a Guardian columnist for 20 years. You may have seen some of his columns before. And he's an amazing thinker. The reason that I wanted him on the podcast is his latest book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, had such an impact on me and contained so much wisdom that I think all leaders could benefit from hearing it. I took a bit of a punt and asked him on. I didn't expect a yes. I mean, he's been on some of the UK's biggest podcasts, including Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CEO, uh, Rangan Chatterjee's podcast, Feel Better, Live More, lots of podcasts that I listen to. But when he did say yes, I jumped at the opportunity. And you'll hear me fangirling quite a lot in this episode. Here's a snippet of what's to come. We all hear about how important it is to learn to say no. That's just time management advice 101 in the 21st century. But everyone secretly thinks what that means is just saying no to things they never wanted to do in the first place, right? So that they're just focused on fulfilling things all the time. No, it means saying no to things that you do want to do, that you do care about, that would have been a totally legitimate use of your time, just because there are too many such potential uses. So more of that to come, but first, a bit about Oliver and his book. Now, the average person has around 4,000 weeks on planet Earth, which doesn't sound like much, does it? But I promise this isn't a pessimistic episode about how short life is and, you know, it's not full of cliches about living in the moment. In his latest book, Oliver Berkman shares an amazing philosophy to overcome overwhelm when it comes to choosing how to spend your 4,000 weeks. We've all been there, struggling to decide which opportunities to say yes to, what to focus on, how to strike a balance between work and home, and we hear leaders talking about that on the podcast all the time. So how do we go about fitting in all the demands on our time? The truth, Oliver points out, is that we won't. Many of the productivity hacks that we learn are a delusion. And the thing that he's really changed my perspective on is this. Time management doesn't mean becoming more productive. It means deciding what to neglect. And once we realise we simply can't fit everything in, we get the freedom to prioritise. And saying no to things, making trade-offs and feeling uncomfortable about that is an inevitable side effect of prioritising how you want to spend your time. So I absolutely loved talking with Oliver. I'm so glad I read his book about 1,768 weeks into my 4,000. And I think his words will give you lots to reflect on. In a world of demands, distractions and endless to-do lists, this conversation might be the most useful time management tool of all. So here's Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. It's a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm especially conscious that 
you know, the book that we're going to talk about is about trade-offs with time. So I'm very grateful that you've chosen to sort of make this trade-off with me. I'm sure there are plenty of other things that you could have been doing, but but thank you so much. There are always a million other things. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the whole problem, isn't it? Although it's actually, when you realize that there are a million, it becomes a lot easier. If there was just like two or three, that would be a very, um, a more agonized choice in a way. Yeah, which is the premise of your book. So thank you. <laughs> Um, I mean, usually with this podcast, what we do is interview leaders inside and outside of the NHS and hear their stories. So this one is quite different, but I really wanted to get you on. And I'm slightly still pinching myself that you said yes, because your book, 4,000 Weeks, was the best book I've read this year. Probably one of the best books I've read for a long time. I have earmarked it, highlighted it, made notes, (laughs) bought copies for friends. And mainly because it's just really helped me understand this concept of our time being limited and therefore why the decisions I'm always trying to make about how to spend my time feel so uncomfortable. So it's been such a useful book for me as a, as a leader, as a GP, as a mum. So thank you for writing it. And I'm really touched that you decided to come on the podcast and talk more about it. Oh, uh, well, I can talk about this stuff for hours. And I think from what I know of this podcast, you're doing something really interesting. So I'm, I'm happy to participate. And thank you for your kind words. So maybe for people that are slightly less familiar with your work, perhaps we should just start there. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? And why did you write the book 4000 Weeks? Sure. I worked for many years as a staff journalist at the Guardian newspaper. And then I wrote this column, uh, partly on staff. And after I went freelance, I wrote this column in the weekend magazine that, that I finished a couple of years ago called um, This Column Will Change Your Life, which was, I spent a lot of time explaining that that title was meant to be a joke, but taking a kind of skeptical look at self-help and productivity, time management, culture, all the rest of this, um, science of happiness, you know, that then informed my book writing work. I wrote a book getting on for a decade ago now about the uh, problems with positive thinking called, and the benefits of negative thinking called The Antidote. And um, this book, 4,000 Weeks, really just, I mean, it it emerged from all that writing and getting to experiment. But really, it's also just a kind of massive work of self-therapy in public, really, because I think I've always been someone who wanted to try to more control over my time and like I ought to be doing all sorts of things that I wasn't finding time for, but also kind of resenting those obligations and wanting more time for myself. And as I write in the book, you know, I spent many years fiddling around with different productivity systems and time management techniques to try to find the, the magic bullet that would that would sort of solve my problems forever. And I guess this book is what came on the other side of that, that it sort of came after having realized that that search was not going to go anywhere and that there was maybe something more fundamentally wrong with how I was thinking about time rather than that I just hadn't found the right combination of life hacks and you know the sufficient reserves of self-discipline or something that there was actually something more deeper to think about. So maybe you'll save our listeners a lot of a lot of time in that regard and then stop <laughs> searching for that magic pillar as you describe. I think you described yourself in the book as a recovering time management junkie, which I yeah. thought was interesting. So um, maybe just tell us, why is it called 4,000 Weeks? Well, uh, just in the effort for an attention grabbing headline, really. <laughs> I mean, that is that is very roughly the average lifespan in the developed world. Something about expressing it in weeks for me when I first sort of came across that idea really, really drove home how, how finite it is. Because even if you break records for, for 
longevity and make it into your sort of 120s or something it's still only 6000 and something right it's really it's really a very small number it's it's a number small enough to get your mind around which which it shouldn't be on some level right we kind of feel like it should feel like it's a vast number of weeks but it but it really isn't i think as medics we're probably very aware of that day to day as well in this job that we do but mm. i when you say it like that it makes you think okay so that means we should pack in as much as possible but that's not what the book is saying the book is not about white knuckle living by any means it's it's about the opposite in fact so could you explain why that is yeah i'm really glad for that distinction thank you because i think that's the sort of place that people's minds immediately go and i totally plead guilty that the title may sort <laughs> of do that initially um and get their attention in that way right it's this idea oh no life is much shorter than i realized or i'm being reminded of how short life is so therefore i've got to sort of uh suck the marrow out of life i've really got to get absolutely everything i can live an extraordinary life do remarkable things be famous etc cetera, etc cetera. um I, actually i think that that view although it seems like confronting and grappling with the finitude of life it's kind of only halfway there i think that the person who's living in that way um is still is still thinking that it might be possible to kind of conquer life in a way that it might be possible to sort of um uh win in your use of time in a sense that is kind of superhuman that kind of involves doing more things and more and a greater number of extraordinary things than than anyone else that sort of idea what i'm hoping to say in this book is if you really understand how finite we are in our time in our capacities and our ability to control the future all the rest of it and how we swim all through our lives in these oceans of infinite possibilities so that there's always millions of unlived lives that you surrender by living the one that you do live there's always going to be more to do more exciting things to do more more social responsibilities you're going to feel than you can than you could ever meet if you really get a sense of how total the mismatch is it, you, it lets you kind of admit defeat in a productive way right it lets you say oh i can stop this white knuckle struggle there's no hope of getting to this position of conquering conquering time or conquering life and then finally the important coda to that that isn't a recipe for a sort of despairing life where you don't do anything worthwhile that precisely is the precondition i would argue for then being able to pour your time and your attention into a handful of things handful of relationships handful of activities that you really care about no longer tormented by this notion that you ought to be doing a much greater number of things and so it's actually kind of liberating it's a, it's disillusionment in a way but it's kind of a good disillusionment because on the other side of that you you see the way things really are and you can get to grips with with life in a better way i think it's a bit abstract but hopefully that kind of sums it up a bit and that liberation is, I think, that's what I felt reading the book, right. which is why I loved it so much and kept coming back to it. I think people listening are probably medical, trying to balance things at home with a really busy job, trying to also balance leadership roles alongside of that. And that, that liberation I found so refreshing because what you're saying is we need to confront our limitations in this, in this regard. But why do we find that so hard? Why do we find it so difficult to understand that? Our time is 
limited demands are limitless mm-hmm. um you know it's going to be uncomfortable to make those trade-offs we find that so difficult yeah absolutely and full disclosure i still do right i haven't, I haven't reached <laughs> some sort of uh, amazing state of total spiritual enlightenment i mean there are lots of ways into why that should be i think the most sort of relevant way of talking about it here probably is just to say it's just our situation that we are radically finite material creatures in the world you know animals with all the physical limitations and temporal limitations of that but we do have this capacity to conceive of the infinite right there's sort of no limit to our mental lives in a sense so you can both feel how exciting it would be to do three different careers that are incompatible and you're also in a situation that you can't do them all you can you can feel an infinite number of moral obligations to members of your family or to the world at large many more than you're ever going to be capable of fulfilling i assume that if you are a uh, a chicken or uh sorry there are a bunch outside the window right now talking <laughs> about chickens or, or a cat or a dog you know that the, there isn't this capacity to be aware of potential and possibility and the future and the things that you could do and the control that you'd like to exert over where life is heading so the fact that you don't have that is not does not create this sense of torment so it's dealing with the situation that we're in because it it make if you really think about it it makes you realize that even the very best life that you could imagine in the real world any the best real life is automatically going to be one that involves waving goodbye to a million paths that you could have taken it's going to mean sacrificing all sorts of goals or even friendships with people you know just to focus on a few that that count it's just built in to the situation so i think what we tend to do in the way that we relate to time is try to find ways of not having to feel that and one of my arguments in the book is that that makes us feel better in the short term but it actually leads to less meaningful life in the long term because you you end up scattered among too many things and you you prioritize things wrongly and it all it all goes to pot basically Mm. and on that on that subject of prioritization you talk about this really well about the rocks in the jar and maybe Mm. it wasn't in your book or one of your articles i don't know but we we taught when you're trying to prioritize you put your big rocks in first and then you put in your pebbles and then you put in the sand and that represents you making sure that the things that matter to you are are in there first Mm. But I think you've said somewhere before that you also have to accept that you might just have too many rocks. Yeah, some absolutely. rocks, some yeah. rocks won't go in, and that feels really uncomfortable. It does. Yes, I totally <laughs> agree. I, that's why that 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 story annoys me so much. It's rigged. The professor or whoever he's meant to be, who brings the the rocks and the pebbles into the classroom or whatever, only brings the number of big rocks that he knows can be made to fit into the the jar and. One of the things I'm always at pains to point out, there's just no reason. We want it to be otherwise, but there's just no reason to assume that the set of things that matters to you, that feels like they're the thing that they need to be done, they need to be given your attention. There's no reason why that set of things should fit magically into the time and capacities you have. In fact, there's tons of really good reasons why it's always going to be much bigger than the time and capacity that you have. So, yeah, it means that you're, you are going to fail to do some things that really matter. Um, 
I quote uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author in the book, who makes this really good point that we all hear about how important it is to learn to say no. That's just time management advice 101 in the 21st century. But everyone secretly thinks what that means is just saying no to things they never wanted to do in the first place, right? So that they're just focused on fulfilling things all the time. But as she points out, no, it means saying no to things that you do want to do, that you do care about, that would have been a totally legitimate use of your time, just because there are too many such potential uses. And as, as with all of this stuff we're talking about, right? Yes, at first, definitely painful. But if you sort of go into it, liberating in its sheer unavoidability, in its sheer non-negotiability, because if I can persuade you that this is just irrevocably true of everyone's life, then at least you can sort of stop beating yourself up for not managing to do something impossible. And you can sort of free up those reserves of energy and motivation for just doing a few important things, knowing that lots of other things are going to get neglected, but it was always going to be that way. This is the bit of the book that I just think really hit home. I think this is why I love the book so much. And I think we'll continue to return to it because you talk about avoiding middling priorities. So as you say, you're saying no, not just to things that you don't want to do, but to things that have a legitimate claim on your attention that do matter to you. And I think I only became aware of how important that was when I became a mum. It was mm. almost like before that I could fit in most things. And you also have this wonderful phrase in the book that busyness has become an emblem of prestige. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, just say yes to everything, do as much as you can possibly do. Mm -hmm. Then I became a mum and suddenly I had to make lots more trade-offs than I ever had to make before. And I was saying no to things that I would have previously said yes to mm -hmm. and finding that really, really uncomfortable. But what, what I think I learned from the book is that actually that discomfort is a sign of you making conscious choices with how you want to spend your time. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we shouldn't expect, I mean, I'm always um, hesitant to attribute ideas to Heidegger because I'm just not sure I fully understood him. I'm not sure anyone has fully understood <laughs> him. But, but I think you can talk about, in a way, there's two modes of being. And one of them is a kind of inauthentic anxiety that comes from constantly trying to deny the truth of the things we're talking about here and constantly trying to find ways not to feel them. And the other is a much more authentic way of existing because it's in contact with those truths but it's still kind of anxious because it's just where we are at right and there may be some zen masters who have got to the point where they are fully at ease with that situation but maybe what most of us should focus on instead at least in the first instance is moving from that inauthentic anxiety to the authentic kind of anxiety <laughs> where you're sort of saying look yeah this is how it is and i don't like it but it really is how it is and there's nothing good that comes from putting all my energy and effort into trying to, to, to deny the truth. And I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about parenthood specifically, but my experience too, uh, even though I suspect it's all a lot more acute for mothers than for fathers, is that the degree to which your finitude is, is driven home to you is really significant. And ultimately, really fantastic, not just because mm. of the many payoffs of, of having kids, but but also because I would ultimately like it to be made impossible for me to ignore how finite I am, right? That's a good thing. I want to, I want to, I want to know that because then I'm going to make better decisions about how to use my time and be less regretful about the things that I 
don't get time for. Hmm. And and talk to me about FOMO, Oliver. I, mean, I guess that's what we're what we're talking about. But that's I was slightly plagued with this during my first maternity leave. Not initially, but maybe six months in of suddenly I've switched off loads of other bits of my life and I'm, I'm being a mum. I was about to say just being a mum, but being a mum, which is a you know, full time job. But I was I was at times plagued with this fear of missing out. And you've got this wonderful way in the book of rephrasing that into the joy of missing out. So can I can you speak a bit about that, please? Yeah. I mean, again, it's just this kind of move, which is very close to my heart of saying taking a problem that people feel with respect to time and not saying to them, oh, no, don't worry, it's not so bad, but actually saying, no, it's so much worse than you thought. <laughs> and, and that's actually why it's liberating, right? Because, because the, I think the anxiety of the fear of missing out carries inside it this implication that it might be possible not to miss out mm. on things. And when you understand that being finite means missing out on almost everything that you could be doing at any moment, almost every path that you could take through life well then it becomes a bit harder to be worried about it because it's already here you're already doing it and you and you can't escape it and i think you can go further than that yeah this is what i try to evoke in the in the book that and say that actually i think you can let that situation give more meaning to the choices that you that you do make so that it's almost precisely because you can't be doing something else while you are looking after a small child or it's precisely because, you know, if you've decided to spend time with certain people in your life, you can't be doing something else with it. That's, that's part of what gives that experience its, its value. You've, you've made a sacrifice that you had to make. Whereas, you know, in some sort of hypothetical situation in which we lived forever, I'm pretty sure it's not an original thought at all, but I'm pretty sure that would be a terrible, terrible existential situation to be in because there would be no stakes attached to any choice about how to use time. The answer to the question, should I do X or Y today, would always be, who cares? It doesn't, doesn't matter. There's nothing, nothing riding on it because you've got an infinity of other days coming up. I don't, I'm not in this mindset all the time, but there is this sense fairly often that I have of, Oh, it's like an affirmation of the thing that I'm doing, that I that I could, in principle, have done these other things, and I'm and I'm not doing them. Uh, just quickly, one of the other ways that I find this sort of works for me sometimes is to is to think about the shift from the to do list mentality of life's experiences, where you're trying to get through it all, to the idea of a menu, to the idea of li different kind of list, which is one where you. You have this kind of wealth of options to select from. And in a restaurant, choosing the dish from the menu, you may get order envy. That does happen. <laughs> but generally speaking, you, you would never consider it a failure of your evening at the restaurant that you didn't have all the dishes on the menu. That's such a good way of putting it. Thank you. This is one of the biggest things that I think has changed for me since reading the book is that feeling of I'm missing out has become... It's still uncomfortable, but this discomfort is a good thing. I sort of embrace it that this is a sign that I've made a conscious choice with how I want to spend my time. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that's what leads to a meaningful life. And I think even sort of after I came back from maternity leave, I very much decided to stay part time. I still right. say no to lots of things that would eat into my weekends because I just love being a mum and I don't want to mm. spend that time working. And before I read your book, I often found that really uncomfortable 
And now I've come to think, no, that is a positive sign. That means that I've made a conscious choice. This is a good thing. This is me choosing what's important to me in a a finite life. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think that the the distinction we're talking about here is people who are making people who are making choices and trade-offs unconsciously Mm. and people who are doing it consciously and the move to do those kinds of things a bit more consciously in life is a really beneficial one there's nobody who who's found a way of not having to make those trade-offs right and the person who says yes to everything at work and works full-time and has much less time for their kids is making a different trade-off might even be the best trade-off for somebody else but but it's it's the idea that we can avoid the trade-offs that is the dangerous one and i think ultimately if you're doing it consciously that's that's the key and i I really like that thought of the to-do list versus the menu that's a really good way of putting it so on that note oliver talk to me a bit about your own work-life balance um you've got a very refreshing take on work-life balance i know you've got a five-year-old son as well and i'm sure you have to think about this quite a lot how do you balance your work and life at home Wow, it's an interesting question when I really focus on it because I think I've got a fairly good one, relatively speaking, but but it's never not a question for me. It's not like I'm just sort of totally relaxed about it. I feel that strange situation of simultaneously not giving anywhere near enough time to my work and, and being completely immersed in family, which I love, but then at the same time thinking that I don't give anywhere near enough time to my family. It's really odd. How it can't, these things can't both coexist, but they apparently do. I'm glad um, you, you, you feel like that. It's not just it's not just And I just have to remind us. myself that yeah. my wife thinks it's very entertaining to tell me that I should read my own book, of course. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke in our household. Um, but one of the things I did since writing the book was we moved from Brooklyn, probably only temporarily, but let's see, to the North York Moors we're in a sort of rural setting instead of, a, instead of an urban one. And one of the sort of impacts of how we change things around is that, you know, our son goes to school, but outside of that, and a few little bits of childminding and other playdates at other people's houses here and there, we're basically we're much more, I'm spending much more time in the just family stuff than I would have done when he was all through the working day in preschool things and stuff. So in a way, it's again, just, has the effect to me of sort of foregrounding the fact that these are choices to be made all the time and that uh, on some level I would love to be giving 100% more time to that to family time but also 100% more time to work that can't happen so I mean in terms of how I have it balanced one of the things that I really try to do this might not be relevant to everyone in your audience but is is to understand that not every hour of work is created equal and luckily me and my wife who also works from home um have sufficiently different kind of circadian rhythms that i get to have most of the early-ish mornings of work and then i do the pick up from school and do family things more in the afternoon and, and evening and and she is happy to do the morning family stuff and work on a sort of later slightly later shift and so what i discover from that is that for me hours between eight and midday for work are 10 times more effective than than other ones and that if i can do three hours in that chunk where i'm sort of focused on the most important work projects in my life that is a little bit of a 
magic bullet in a way because that's actually a lot better for productivity for me than a lot longer period of hours that are at a different time of day. So, um, you know, there's things like that, but it's sort of, I don't know, I'm not giving a very adequate answer to this question because I don't think it's resolved at all. I think it, it's, it's never the same from one week to the next. It's half term now, so it's going heavily in the direction of hanging out with my son and, and much less in the direction of uh, work stuff. The thing that you say in the book about work-life balance is it's a mythical concept that in our head that we sort of live in this fantasy where we can be really present parents and go on silent meditation retreats and run marathons and flourish at work and excel in our careers. and that, But that only exists in our head because there is no limit on our time. And in reality, it's always going to be much harder than that. And I thought that was yeah. a, you know, work-life balance is a mythical concept. I thought that was a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I think I've just, I've just stopped expecting it to feel resolved. I think that's, that's the thing. And I think it's important to distinguish between resolved and satisfying. So I feel like I'm at a very, I'm in a very, just speaking personally again, like I'm in a very, I'm in a really lovely phase of things. I feel like it's working well and, and I'm really happy with the, time apportioning to these different things broadly speaking but it's not resolved it's not fix it and forget it it's not going to be like something will happen in a week and it'll be it'll be all different again so i think that's not needing the kind of or having less of a need than i used to for the kind of sense of control that is okay i've got this sorted out now it's going to be straightforward and you talk about strategic underachievement in this sense as well which i think is a really good phrase talk to me about that yeah, that's just this idea that, um, well, it sort of has two meanings. There's a sort of slightly jokey one, which is the thing about how if you don't want to be asked to replace the toner in the printer in the office, you just have to do it really badly once and then no one will ever ask <laughs> you to do those things again. So some of it is to do with sort of slightly passive aggressive way of not doing well at things you don't want to get asked to do. I think what I really mean in the more sort of in a slightly deeper sense is this notion of making a conscious decision about areas of your life or ambitions or projects that for now you are not going to excel at. So it's about saying, I'm not going to, you know, for the time that I have this newborn baby, I'm, I'm not going to demand of myself that the house is incredibly tidy or that I do more in sort of terms of physical fitness than the minimum that I should do, right? In your case, not deciding to make the next three months the time when you train for the marathon or something like that, right? And it's not saying I give up on these things forever. It's saying seasonally, I'm not going to expect this of myself. The logic is being finite with a greater number of possible things to do than you can ever get around to doing. You're going to fail in some areas, but there's a very big difference between having decided that in advance and then not being dismayed and filled with self-reproach when you do indeed fail than setting out to do them all constantly feeling bad because some of them you, you failed at. So, and I think you can take this to quite an extreme degree. Like I would say, I think it's totally justifiable for somebody who's just had a child, for example, to absolutely do the least they think they can get away with in work for a while. You obviously can't do nothing except obviously when you're literally on leave, but, but I think that's fair. I also think that a young professional starting off at the beginnings of their career shouldn't feel bad if they work almost all the time if that's something that is consistent with their goals and, and that this notion of work-life balance that you ought not to be doing that and there ought to be large amount of time in every day and every week for work and for other things and for 
self-care and for spending time with friends with a hobby you know just gets unmanageable because inevitably it becomes a demand that we spend it adds up to more than 100 percent of our time i really like that because you're saying you sort of you feel like you're failing but that might just be temporary yeah i'm not the fittest i could be right now my house has never recovered really after i had my first child but um maybe one day it will get back to us okay maybe when she's at school or something it will right. it will or get maybe back that doesn't matter to, to you right yeah, yeah exactly it's like yeah it's, just, it's yeah. temporary you will feel like you're failing in some areas that's inevitable but that is for this season and that is right for me this season and in a future season that may or may not change depending yeah. on what you choose yeah. to do and when you know when we're talking about your own work-life balance when you get requests in to do things or when in terms of your own work, how do you decide what to say yes and what to say no to? And I think I'm slightly alluding to this really wonderful concept that I've heard you talk about of enlarging and diminishing choices. I wondered yeah. if you could tell me a bit more about that. I think that's so important for people to hear. Well, I got this is a question that comes from the Jungian psychotherapist James Hollis, who I'm a huge admirer of. One of the many very wise things he says is that when I think he's usually talking about considering a life choice, you know, a path, a fork in the road or something, something a little bit larger than maybe you're talking about here, but I totally think it applies. Asking whether a choice will make you happy or not is, is really a problematic way to phrase things because we are terrible at predicting what will make us happy. We're no good at that endless research to establish that fact, I think. And also, it's not quite right to say that happiness is what we're seeking necessarily. What we're seeking is some experience of a meaningful life that probably involves some hard challenges as well as as well as just fun all the time so this question as an alternative would this choice enlarge me or diminish me i find and i think lots of people find sounds like you find a very good way of connecting to an a more intuitive sense of whether that's a meaningful direction or not and it enables you to distinguish between certain kinds of negative experience that are good for you and certain kinds that aren't. So I think it's an interesting question to ask in relationship problems. There are there's certain kind category of relationship problems that suggests that you're in a terrible toxic relationship and have to get out of it. And then there's a certain category which is all just part and parcel of growing and developing the skills of living with a whole other human being. And you can usually if you if you just say well I, I want a life without problems and difficulties, then you're not going to be able to distinguish between those two. But I think that if you ask, does this enlarge me or diminish me, you can often tell, well, this situation in my life is one where it does kind of diminish me and my soul is shriveling. I need to get out of that thing. But this other thing is difficult and is not always fun, but I'm absolutely sure that it's growth oriented. It's generative. It's, it's enlarging in that sense. And yeah, I wouldn't say that I go through that question explicitly all the time when it comes to whether or not to write a given article or do a given podcast or something. But I think the sort of shorthand that I use is I do get, I do more and more try to feel into the sense of whether there's energy in it. Whereas previously I might have tried, totally hopelessly, but I would have tried to figure out whether it lined up with some set of goals or whether it fit with a sense of how I wanted my schedule to look. I'm, I'm much more likely now to just be, is that kind of exciting in a way? Um, and that's a huge privilege. I totally acknowledge there are plenty of people who may not be in the situation to use that as a judgment. But I think there is always some, almost always some scope in our lives to turn more towards where the, the energy is. I think that will be relevant to people listening, thinking about maybe leadership opportunities, because 
that's often what you know will this will this step in a, into a leadership role make me happy it's perhaps not quite the right question but will it enlarge me or will it diminish me? And it might be slightly painful or uncomfortable, as you say, at least right. to start with, but that is a sign of growth. Yeah, and I can see in that situation, it would enable you to distinguish between two different reasons that you might not want to step into that kind of position. One set is, well, because you're only doing it because you think you have to, or you have to prove something, or mm. you think it's expected of you, and then you might actually want to not take that opportunity. But if, on the other hand, it's because you don't quite believe you've got what it takes, then that's a good moment to think, well, okay, it will be enlarging to, to do it and to discover if I had what it takes and I'm probably underrating myself and, and all the rest of it. So that could be a really, you know, I think there are times when you want to say no to those things, but, but not because they're going to be difficult, right? Not just because they're going to be difficult. And you've written so well on this as well, the imposter syndrome, that feeling of you're not good enough. I will put a link in the show notes, to that fantastic article you wrote, which was essentially saying that everyone is winging it all of the time. Where, where did that come from? Well, I mean, I think it's true, but that's funny because I wrote it in like, I wrote that blog post in like an hour and a half, so much quicker than I've spent months writing magazine articles that had no feedback at all. But that it was, went viral, really, that was didn't it? like an hour yeah. and a half, and it's probably the most <laughs> popular piece of journalism I've, I've ever done. I think it just resonates very deeply with people. And again, it's this, again, I think it's another example of saying, Look, the correct way to feel liberated from imposter syndrome is not to say, oh, no, no, you're not an imposter. Don't feel bad about yourself. You are really, really good. It's to say, yeah, you are an imposter, but literally everybody is. It's worse <laughs> than you thought. And because it's worse than you thought, it's actually better than you thought because nobody really knows what they're doing in the sense that you are imagining when you berate yourself being an imposter. Now, it's interesting, the, the, the most pushback I've ever got from that article was the sort of people saying that's not true for you know doctors and pilots and people and and i'm picking on these kind of people who have clearly a huge body of expertise and are involved in situations that can be where lives can be at stake and i think it shouldn't be overinterpreted because i i don't believe that your average surgeon or airline captain doesn't know what they're doing it's just that their relationship to their expertise i do think based on a handful of conversations, nothing more, is, is probably not what the person deep in imposter syndrome thinks it is. It's not this kind of absolute certainty about what's going to happen or an absolute sureness that you know what to do. It's, it's a different way of accommodating the intrinsic uncertainty of the situations. I don't want that to sound like a totally anti-intellectual point or a point about against experts or something, but, but I do think we are all winging it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm winging it all the time as a doctor. That's probably be a little bit worrying, but um, definitely tolerating a degree of uncertainty and feeling like a fraud a lot of the time right. is what is what you're saying. That's you know that's very common for people to experience. Yeah. I really like that article in the context of being a mum as well because it made me think. I guess it's just very much on my mind at the moment. Yeah. But you sort of think everyone knows what they're doing when they have a child, especially the first time. Then you can feel like an imposter as well as a new parent. You know, how can you look after another human being but you realize that everyone is making it up as well right there's, yes, like there's no ever, guide right and the only the most <laughs> the most damage is probably done by the people who honestly think they have a fixed system of of parenting that, that, uh, that they're really good at yeah. yeah i want to move on a bit oliver and talk about efficiency so there's a fantastic chapter in your book on this about inbox zero 
And I think for people listening, whether it's relevant to their email inbox um, or whether it's relevant, you know, in general practice, we have this inbox of tasks that come in. Talk to me about, about clearing the decks. Right. So this is just the idea that, you know, we have this very deeply culturally reinforced notion that the way to cope with and find peace of mind amid uh, a huge number of inputs, a huge number of demands is to process them more efficiently. That's the sort of abstract point. And in the context of email, that is just, if you're overwhelmed with email, get really good at processing email efficiently, use all the sort of add-ons to Gmail or clever scheduling tricks about when you're going to do things, whatever, just get to the point where you can process it really efficiently. And this comes, this is, I argue, sort of a legacy of the industrial revolution. It's the way that people were thinking about machinery back then and to some extent about also about the people who operated that machinery if they were treated as machines themselves and not their well-being wasn't really taken into account but for the kind of work that so many of us do these days that involves knowledge and expertise and thinking and creativity and all the rest of it it just it's not very well suited to that kind of work and it just sort of systematically fails because if the inputs are effectively infinite, if, if there is no real limit to the number of emails that you could receive, then what happens when you get more efficient is you just increase the supply you have to deal with. You get more emails. When I have this, I've had this experience personally, when you sort of up the tempo of responding to emails, you reply to more people more quickly, then more of them reply to you and you get a reputation for being really responsive on email. <laughs> and so the result of managing your time, quote, well, is to get more of that stuff there's this very strong urge to kind of clear the decks before we move on to the other things, especially, you know, just reach peace of mind by knowing that the decks are clear. And yet there are all sorts of reasons in the modern world of work why the decks are never going to be clear, why actually the act of clearing the decks is going to cause them to fill up again faster. Um, now, I'm not sure how that works with the, the kinds of inboxes that you're talking about within healthcare specifically, but I can well imagine, tell me if this is wrong, but certain processes and procedures do have to be moved forward at a certain rate. It's possible to do things in a way that is so slow as to be unprofessional. Absolutely. But if you think that by pushing them to go faster and faster, you're going to get through them all, well, that's clearly not what's going to happen because all that's going to happen is that more inputs are going to flood into your fixed capacity so that you're going to end up doing uh, sort of actioning things faster and faster is going to cause more and more things that you have to action faster and faster. And maybe you have to do that sometimes in emergency situations, but the problem is the idea that it has a destination, right? Mm. That it has a sort of, that it has peace of mind almost there, just over the hill, just over the horizon, and, and it doesn't. See, if you think efficiency is going to get you to peace of mind with respect to time, that's the mistake because it will have the opposite effect or else be neutral. So when you have your, your, you know, your four hours from eight to 12 or whatever it is in your day, I find it very anxiety inducing to see my inbox full yeah. of unread messages. And it's quite satisfying to bang through them quite quickly and clear yeah. that. But then what you say is that then the important things, the things that really matter, get left to some imaginary time in the future when all the decks are clear and ultimately they end up never happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. So my, I mean, again, I'm not saying I do this flawlessly and other people in their work situations may not be able to replicate it exactly, but I try very hard to do that sort of three or four hours first on moving stuff forward that matters the most. And then to assign a broadly fixed amount of time later on to clearing the decks 
in quotes, but not actually aiming to clear them, right? So just working on that stuff. So I will go into my inbox for, you know, maybe it needs an hour, maybe it needs two hours to keep broadly, uh, you know, processing what needs to be processed. But I won't, what I've pretty much broken the habit of myself is thinking that I'm, I've got to first get on top of that before moving on to the other stuff. And part of that is just a question of um, being a little bit reliable, but a bit slower. That sometimes is, you find in a lot of settings, mm. people would rather you always did reply to an email within 24 or 48 hours than that you sometimes replied within half an hour. And sometimes there was just radio silence for, for weeks. And then also it's that certain things are not going to get the replies that they deserve um, at all. And so, you know, I'm in a slightly odd situation in an audience-based kind of line of work where I get a lot of relatively speaking, a lot of emails from perfect strangers in a way. And it was quite a big deal for me to realize that I could reply to a really interesting 800 word email that I was <laughs> glad to receive with one sentence. And remarkably often people are really happy that, that I responded at all mm. um, instead of having to sort of match them for length, which becomes impossible because they sent one of those emails uh, this week and I might have received 50. So it's, it's not a reasonable expectation. Well, thank you for replying to me because um, I love your newsletter, which I'll put in the show notes as well, The Imperfectionist. But at the bottom, you sort of encourage people to email you and I couldn't ignore that. I thought, let me just try. <laughs> Not really yeah, expecting no, I a mean, reply. I'm, I'm, must a, I'm a, a mate of myself, but <laughs> true. I do want to hear from people and I've had some amazing feedback, some of it just nice and ego boosting and some of it just really interesting recommendations of things to think about and things to read and stuff like that. So I really do want to be in communication although i have altered that note recently to heavily adjust expectations but it's amazing sometimes how things do sort themselves out as well if you're on holiday or something or you take a bit longer to reply and that by the time you've come around to it the issue has resolved itself in any yeah case. no there can be strategic benefits to, <laughs> yeah. to not replying to email you use the concept in your book i think of pay yourself first i really like that i'm not sure where it came from but essentially saying you've got to spend the time doing the important things first and let the other chips fall. Yeah, this is, I should credit that to creativity coach, Jessica Abel. Obviously, originally pay yourself first is a, is a personal finances idea. It's this idea that when you get your salary or wages, you've got to put a bit away first into your savings or investments or whatever it is. And then most of the time, you're going to be fine. Having You won't miss that money. You'll just get on with your with your month. But if you leave it to the end and you hope that you'll have to have money left over having spent it on all the normal things that you have to spend money on then you'll be disappointed at where there won't be any left and so i think it's really the same with with time right if you're chasing this moment when there's going to be more time it won't ever happen but if you can put just an hour at the start of the day or make sure you give a couple of hours in the week to something that you really care about not necessarily work there's some creative project you want to do you do have to switch so that you're not trying to get everything else out of the way so that you then turn to it you just have to do a bit of it and you'll almost always find that there's enough time for all the other stuff once you've once you've done that and so then you will actually have done it which is the difference um, and what you're talking about there really is procrastination which i think you speak really really well on so wh why are we so bad at this you know why is procrastination so tempting yeah, I sort of come at this in two different ways. And one of them is to say that in a certain sense, procrastination is unavoidable, right? If procrastination is just not making progress on things that matter, then you're procrastinating on almost everything 
every hour of the day. And so that can't be avoided. The other way I talk about it, I guess, is that one of the ways that we try to maintain this feeling of control over our time and this sense that we're sort of in charge of things is by not making progress on things, right? Like if you if you have this dream of this amazing novel you're going to write or screenplay or I don't know, but also it happens in like amazing relationship you might have or something, the best way to maintain the fantasy of it all being perfect is not to start it, not to do anything about it. So then you get this phenomenon of people nursing ideas for what they want to do with their lives for years and not doing them specifically because they matter so much to them. So they're postponing them because they matter. And I think you do have to see what's going on there and get over the perfectionism that is implicit in it and see that you know any attempt to do something in the real world to actually launch a certain career or to work on a creative project or to be in a committed relationship it's just intrinsically imperfect it's not going to turn out as perfectly as your mind could have imagined it um and that's built in and so then you might as well just do it because mm. you're never going to get to the time where you can do it with absolute confidence of total perfection and that is exactly what happened with this podcast with me i think i procrastinated for about two years because in my <laughs> head it was oh yeah it could be this amazing thing and, and my perfectionism really sunk in but when I actually had to start it, it was suddenly being confronted with my own imperfections and limitations. So it was easier just not to, not to bother. As you well know, I'm not telling you and you don't know, but the, the only way that something like a podcast would ever become really, really good anyway is by doing it a bunch of times, yeah, right? So it's, absolutely. It's, it's so ironic that we get into this trap, but I am very familiar with it from a, in a personal way. And, and on that note, the, the, what you also talk about is distraction. And I was thinking about this when I was preparing for this podcast. you talk about this willingness to tolerate discomfort and you wrote that amazing column which I'll also put in the show notes the eight secrets to a fairly fulfilled life which we won't go into now people can read I really recommend it but one of them one of your secrets was the capacity to tolerate minor discomfort is a superpower and I was preparing for this podcast and trying not to procrastinate but actually, when I'm sitting down trying to think about what do I want to ask you, I've got this opportunity. It's, it's quite uncomfortable mm-hmm. and it's very easy to just turn on social media or my inbox, uh, which, you know, people have paid millions of pounds to grab my attention there as well. Yeah. But it's much easier on the mind to do that and think about something difficult, like how am I going to construct my conversation with mm. Oliver Berkman? Yeah. I mean, this is the piece of distraction been so revelatory to me and that I try to focus on in the book. It's true that our attention is being stolen by the attention economy. That's all real. I don't think anything I say should let Silicon Valley off the hook (laughs) in that respect. There are major forces out to, um, to distract us. But it's also the case that we kind of give into it willingly, right? Yeah, as you say, it, it seems like the things that we've decided really matter to us, when it comes to the crunch, we'd very often rather not do them. And we'd rather do something that, by definition, if it's a distraction, doesn't matter to us. We know in the moment that we turn to that social media platform that it's not what we want to be doing. And I just think it's useful to see that this isn't a coincidence. It's not just sort of sheer bloody mindedness or perversity or something that causes you to not want to do the things you thought you wanted to do. It's that those meaningful things always involve an encounter with some kind of limitation. You don't know if you can do it well or... You feel like there's a lot riding on it. You don't know if it'll be well received. 
uh, it might make you, in the case of some things that we distract ourselves from, it might make you feel emotionally vulnerable and you'd rather not. There are all these different reasons why the things we care about doing feel uncomfortable. They just bring us into contact with the fact that we're not completely in control and command of our, of our time and of how our lives unfold. I just think that's really useful because it shows you not to expect that just using an app to block the internet from your computer or taking a social media app off your phone, like do those things, but don't expect that that's the whole solution because the real problem is the degree to which we sort of flinch from difficult things. But that's fine too. It's not, I don't think people should beat themselves up for flinching from difficult things. What I have found consistently is that if you can just a little bit use a little bit of tough love and stay with the discomfort it it is essentially never on the scale that you seem to you implicitly fear in your in your attempts to to flee it right it, it's a it's a little bit uncomfortable to keep going with the chapter i'm trying to write than to go off to twitter or something but really a little bit easily dealt with and that's something huge i took from the book was that being able to tolerate that discomfort as you say is the key to being able to get on with meaningful work almost to expect it but it, it will come not to combat it in yourself but yeah that's me being human and meanwhile i'm gonna keep going for a while mm. oliver i'm conscious of our time just got a few minutes left i just want to ask you finally about this concept of being obsessed with using our time well you say in the book that we treat what we're doing as valuable only insofar as it lays the groundwork for something else and i, I think i'm really guilty of this of trying to use the example of lawyers and billable hours, trying to sort of extract the most value from my every moment, even in rest. And I think given right. people listening are pretty worn out by the pandemic, any advice you can offer there? Yeah, I think it's just really interesting how all of our attempts to use time well, and our attempts to sort of get in charge of time, they almost inevitably and logically speaking, lead us to put all the meaning of life in the future. They lead to this sense that the reason you're trying to use time well is to get to a place where things are going to be tranquil or where you have um, done the things that you needed to do. And the result of living in this mindset all the time, we have to do it to some extent to get anything done, I think, but really over-investing in it is that you're never in the moment. You're always living for the the future. And we do this absolutely, as you say, with our rest as well. So we think that the reason to rest is to recuperate for more work or the reason to the, the things you should do with your leisure time are more projects like training for marathons. I've using that example twice. I've never got close to training for a marathon <laughs> myself. But, uh, doing, trying to reach fitness goals. Again, not a bad thing in itself, but, but if it's all you do, it has this constant effect of, of sort of fueling the dissatisfaction, never being in the, in the present. On the other hand, as I say in the book, I think, you know, trying to sort of be in the moment in some kind of mindful way is often really difficult and not a useful way to, to, to think about it. I think two things are useful. One is just the realization that life actually does just unfold in a sequence of present moments. It's not a question of trying to be in the moment. It's a question of seeing that you just are in the moment. And the future, in a certain sense, is never going to arrive because it's always going to be in the future. And at some point, if you're going to be kind to yourself or enjoy the place you live or people you live with or a good novel you are just going to at some point have to do that in a present moment and so in a sense why not now and then i think the other thing that's worth saying about this is that it almost follows from that that true rest 
true kind of just doing something to be in the moment with yourself is going to feel like you're wasting time. You're going to have to do something that doesn't help some future scenario. And so you almost have to waste time in order to use time most effectively, paradoxically. And so I talk in the book how I think we should all have a hobby. It can become a sort of embarrassing notion to have a hobby. But it's actually a really subversive thing to do, to just say there's something in my life that I only do because I find pleasure and enjoyment and absorption in doing it now. Not because it's leading anywhere or I'm going to monetize it or it's going to lead to a qualification or I've got the duty to do it or anything like that. So I would encourage people to do something for itself and not to expect it to feel great in the first moments that you do that because you're running counter to all the pressures of our uh, society and culture. And going back to the perfectionism, but I really took this from the book that you just might be a bit rubbish at it as well. So I, at the time I read your book, I was trying to decide whether to start um, playing football and I then did and I was not very good at it, but I enjoyed it. I never got better at it. I just kept playing in a fairly (laughs) crap way, but it felt really good to be doing something just for the sake of doing it because it was enjoyable in the moment, not to be better at it. Oliver, thank you so much. I don't want to take up any more of your, your valuable time. I'll, um, I'll finish with a quote from your book, which I loved, which is, give up hope of feeling totally in control, that you'll meet other people's limitless demands and stop disappointing them, that you'll realise every ambition, excel in every role, give every good cause what it deserves, that acutely painful experiences won't come your way and that this is just a dress rehearsal and one day you'll feel fully confident that you have what it takes. I loved that from the book. Thank you. Thank you for writing the book. I can probably count on one hand the number of books I've read twice and I've already read yours twice and probably will be three times. I couldn't recommend it highly enough to people. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation, Nishan, and uh, you know, best of luck with your uh, next chapter. So that was episode 32. And as 2022 comes to a close, I think there was loads to reflect on in terms of how we want to spend our time, the things we say no to, the joy of missing out, strategic underachievement, why everyone's winging it all of the time, and the value of true rest. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope you love the book if you end up reading it. So that's it for the Next Gen Cast for 2022. We'll be back at some point in 2023 with some more fantastic conversations. And in the meantime, wishing you and your families a safe and restful Christmas and New Year. Bye.